Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, November 19th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, our old friend, head of the Bonson Group, author of the DCToday.com and DividendCafe.com newsletters, and the author of the new book, There's No Free Lunch, which we'll be getting to in a minute. David Bonson. Hi, David. Well, hello, John, and hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, pleasure to have you. You're uh, you're you're up early on the West Coast and uh, and and probably uh, living living the life, unlike some of us. Although Abe and I were uh, honored to have attended the book party for There's No Free Lunch here in New York um, uh, last week, and I had several delicious Diet Cokes, and Abe Abe seemed to be in, in, in enjoying the uh, enjoying the martinis. Uh, and it was a very lively and, uh, and, and, and fun, uh, event, um, and more sybaritic than a, than a person who has written a daily, a work that, that uh, intends to be something of a daily devotional dedicated to free enterprise. One would have thought that this would have been a more, a sober, a more sober event, but many people were enjoying the grape, I would say at, at your party. Well, I can assure you that the author of the book was not enjoying the grape. Um, and so I suppose if there's no free lunch, there may as well have been free booze for everybody else. But um, there was yes. a bill associated with the bar tab. I, I I'm feeling say, very judged about my martinis now. Yeah, by the yeah. way, your martinis, you were you were I will I will say that it, it, it was a really startling thing to be in a room of people again with people in their cups like one of the things one hasn't seen in in the last couple of years is kind of like the elementary experience of being at a party where some people are like i mean i just i love you i just love you so much you know like that like it was one of those uh, people have obviously have uh just as there is pent-up demand uh, chasing too few goods there is pent-up demand for having social experiences that are lubricated by um by fermentation so anyway uh thank you for I, I, inviting John, us. I strongly suspect that the people who uh have felt that pent-up demand were finding other ways to meet their supply need throughout the pandemic so we heard and of course the the real relaxation on the ability to order such goods uh by mail um i'm sure contributed heartily to their to their uh, enjoyment. Anyway, to move on to uh, more pressing matters or uh, more immediate matters, I guess, as we are speaking, uh, the House of Representatives is preparing to vote uh, on the Build Back Better bill, which appears now, we now have settled on a price tag in the media of around $2 trillion. I want to repeat that number, $2 trillion, because a couple of weeks ago, excuse me, a couple of weeks ago, uh, somehow it had mystically become $1.75 trillion, and now apparently it's $2 trillion. Everybody will remember, I hope, that since March, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, who is, of course, not voting on this version of the bill because this is only the House, said he's not willing to go above a, above $1.5 trillion. The House bill is $2 trillion. So... Not quite clear what they're doing because they're apparently passing a bill that will die in the Senate, uh, which is, I guess, what a lot of us expect anyway. 
Um, but it's just interesting politics because there's going to be this vote and, uh, and it's actually maybe fundamentally going to be meaningless except laying the groundwork for the Republican campaign against the Democrats in 2022, um, which uh, is a very convenient, they've been handed a very convenient set of, um, of, of, of policy issues that they can attack Democrats on for their fecklessness and, and, uh, and uh, exuberant spending and all of that. Um, well, speaking of lubrication, you need to get yes. to the Congressional Budget Office estimates yes, which please. came out Go late ahead. last night, which produced, you know, broke the logjam, as it were. Um, so this Congressional Budget Office has been working on the <clears throat> Build Back Better bill, and it came back with the top lines, which is we should start with. Um, it will add over the course of a decade $367 billion to the deficit. Now, that's a lot, but it's not cosmically a lot, which seems to be all that anybody cares about. It needs to be monumental spending and monumental deficits in order to um, to 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 be anything you know historic. And that's all anybody wants, something historic. What happened here, however, is that the White House says that the official the overall CBO cost estimate came in about 50 billion dollars below their estimates, their estimates where that was going to cost even more. And when you think about all the revenue that it's going to generate, then, you know, it, it's just it's, it's total, totally sensible. It's not so profligate that it's going to offend the sensibilities of moderates. And one by one, moderates in the House fell in line last night and will be voting for this today. Um, all this is gimmickry that I don't think is going to satisfy the, the more reticent members of the Senate, and including Joe Manchin, who hasn't said anything, but Kirsten Sinema has and said that she's, you know, her position hasn't changed. And she said she was making some very skeptical noises. Um, the gimmick here is that the revenue is going to be produced on the back end. Taxes are going to rise. And eventually you know, the IRS is going to get all this new money. It's going to hunt down tax cheats. We're going to get like $400 billion out of tax cheats. Nobody knows how much money the IRS is not collecting by definition because they don't know what people aren't paying in taxes. That's the point of this. You can't actually game out that revenue. You can game out the tax revenue. But again, this is way down the line, 10 years down the line, and all the spending is front-loaded. So they spend nearly $800 billion right up front. That's the deficit. It's $800 billion. It's not 360 whatever billion. Uh, and then eventually we, we start to pair that back with new taxes, new revenue, new IRS enforcement, most of which won't be forthcoming. So if you're even remotely skeptical about deficit spending, this thing should be raising a lot of eyebrows, and it's. David, uh, you your your business, uh, your your entire professional model deals with the interplay of politics and policy and all of that, and so um, I, I'm struck by the fact that uh, that that we we have a report on a bill adding, um, as Noah says, 370 billion dollars to the deficit, which is probably higher anyway. First of all, I'm sure it's higher. But uh, but I mean, it's higher. It will be there will be some emendations over the course of the next couple of weeks that make it clear that it's higher. And then there is this whole mysterious question about how much the IRS can collect more than it's collecting now by hiring a whole bunch of agents to audit a whole bunch of people and 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 enforce things better to the tune, according to the Biden people, of hundreds of billions of dollars, which just seems preposterous. I mean, you could say that about anything at any time that in theory, 
you could hire a million auditors and they could get a trillion dollars back, I suppose, if, you know, if, if the logic is that each auditor can generate, you know, five times his income, his, uh, his uh, salary and in, in what, what he, what he audits or something. Anyway, uh, as as somebody who 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 looks at these things i mean the notion that you could take a bill say that it costs 370 billion dollars and because of the madness of the last 10 years people don't go what did you just say to me a 370 billion dollar increase in the federal deficit are you insane is just, I mean, it's interesting, you know, I went back and I was looking because I, a couple of years ago, I was going to write a book about the year 1979. Deficit spending was a huge issue in 1979. I mean, there were, you know, it was, it was like one of those talking points that, you know, drove every, it, it was used. You know what the federal deficit was in 1979? $5 billion. And and if you remember, the big criticism of supply side economics was not class envy, tax reduction, marginal tax rate reduction. The big concern on supply side was the impact to deficits. There was sort of this bipartisan concern that tax cuts would enhance deficit spending. That was the big evil. So I think that we're in a period of time where where the comma goes, where the decimal goes, the number of zeros on the right side, those things kind of don't matter. And yet, of course, they, they add, you know, exponential math to, to the problem. Um, I do believe that there is a problem of people not appreciating the difference between the national debt and annual budget deficits. I think that there is um, this confusion that causes people to just say, well, it all sounds bad, but the world's still turning, so whatever. Um, I, I do think in this case, it was very clear, this is generally the case, the CBO issue was not economic, it was not mathematical. The anticipation of CPO, CBO numbers was political. It was whether or not it would give political cover to people to either vote for it or give them cover to not vote for it. And I kind of think the number came in in the worst possible spot where I think Noah's right. If it had come in and actually honestly reflected $800 billion, that gave a lot of cover to probably 30 House Democrats to not vote for it. But at 367, it's sort of this little spot where people can shrug it off. And obviously, Noah already said it, this issue about IRS collection is tautologically absurd how do you know what you are not collecting unless you could be collecting it and if you could be collecting it why aren't you collecting it it is so patently absurd if i were scoring it i'd put it as a negative i'm assuming there's some people out there that are paying more than they should be and that they're going to end up owing refunds throughout this whole process that's the way i look at it it's just ridiculous 
Well, there's also the messaging problem of the IRS component of this bill, which has always struck kind of the average American as sort of alarming. This idea of, yeah, this is a great idea when we're all worried about a lot of major issues and we're in the middle of you know getting out of a pandemic. Let's embolden the IRS even more to start digging into people's you know uh, personal business. And I think that that, I mean, this bill is shaping up to be a situation where the Democrats are patting themselves on the back for giving huge tax breaks for the extremely wealthy. Because they, they will, the wealthy will get a lot of tax breaks out of all of this. And then, you know, basically throwing money at people who already uh, rely considerably on public assistance and whatnot. And so they're becoming this party where the vast middle, which they need to win back to some extent, is being told, not not even engaged, but told this is all for the benefit of society and you just have to go along. At the same time, that the messaging is based on class warfare because the messaging is... If you don't want to embolden a a more powerful IRS, you just want more millionaires and billionaires to get away with not paying their taxes. Right. But let's talk about the millionaires and billionaires because the 2017 revocation or limitation on the state and local tax deduction, right, which was dropped to what, $10,000 or something like that. um, Was used to offset tax cuts. Republicans passed the SALT deduction limitation to pay for capital gains, tax cuts, and a reduction in the There were no, there were no capital gain tax reduction. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. Corporate. I mean, corporate tax cuts and a reduction in the, in the top tax rate. And to offset those costs, they limited SALT. Um, now, the logic of this bill, not the Democrats wouldn't want to go back on the on the other stuff, is you restore the salt deduction, but the other two remain in place. And John, the, 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 the lower the lower the lower top tax rate and the corporate tax cuts remain in place. So it's the biggest windfall for the Republican business class. In the history of anything, this bill, by restoring the SALT deduction, which, of course, also, you know, obviously it affects voters in California, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, uh, primarily. And those are, of course, Democratic states, right? But a lot of the rich people in those states are Republicans. Um, It's fascinating what's happened here, if you think about it. Because it's so kind of terrifying that, from my perspective. As I a, mean, I'm a, I'm fine. I, I don't care. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with that, by the way, because also I will benefit from the salt. Right. No, I mean, as a, as a, a blood sucking conservative, I kind of actually like tax cuts for the wealthy, uh, in part because <laughs> it produces more capital that you can you know dedicate to valuable goods and services. And that generates economic activity. Blah, 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 blah. Ta- you know, the, the horrors of top down, you know, economics. Um but now we have Republicans against this program because it doesn't it benefits the rich at the expense of for, for, we must assume the expense of people farther down the economic ladder and Democrats, you know, going to the mattresses for a tax cut for the rich. It's indicative of a profound political uh, realignment that's ongoing from the bottom up. Um, but if Democrats become the party of tax cuts for the rich as well as very effete social sensibilities, uh, you can see themselves just self-marginalizing in a way that I don't, I don't think they've fully internalized. 
But no, I do think it's it's fair to say that the Republicans who favor the SALT deduction, as I do, so I'm one of these people that my taxes went up dramatically, not a little bit, a, a lot, with the Trump tax cuts. And yet I overwhelmingly favor getting rid of the SALT deduction. It's not because I fa- I'm opposed to tax cuts for the rich. It's because I'm opposed to tax increases for one state at the expense of another. And, and that's the nuance that's being lost on the right here. Uh, uh, they're now jumping into the class warfare of it, as they right. should. It's a great political opportunity. And the person that is allied with the right on this is Bernie Sanders. He's been more cogent in what they're doing politically by, by doing this. I don't think this survives the Senate side. Um, that's another one of these tension points that they're all going into it where people have drawn lines that someone's just going to have to embarrassingly cave or this bill is not going to happen because Bernie has flat out said he will not support this in this regard. And I don't know how they get around it. But David, you remind me of the Republican talking point uh, around the the elimination or reduction of the salt cap was that this is going to finally convince blue state voters to go, go, you know, after their local taxes, after their property taxes, after their state level income taxes, they're finally going to have a revolt in the blue states against their own tax regimes. That didn't happen. No, but I don't think, I think it was that they're either going to revolt or they're going to leave. And I think that did happen. I think that yeah. the defections to uh, low tax red states has been partly exacerbated by the reduction of salt. I mean, I'm sure that's true. And it, 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 a very interesting argument that, you know, really didn't get indulged in because it's too complicated about whether or not salt deduction represented a kind of federal subsidy of high tax states because it 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 it, uh, it reduced the pain of 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 state and local taxes, um, particularly on the professional class that might actually gather to lobby against it. I mean, it's a funny thing because. Uh, uh, David Frum actually made a, a good crack about this the other day, which is that uh, the elimination of the salt deduction while keeping, you know, while, while the other uh, t- taxes were cut, um, you know, may have looked like it benefited hedge funders against uh, orthodontists and, you know, people who run large landscape businesses. And the re- return of the salt deduction is their revenge like they're 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 getting back what they they need if you work in new jersey and you make five hundred thousand dollars a year you own a you know you you make five hundred thousand dollars a year running a a a gardening business like you lost you had a huge tax increase and now they're getting theirs back whereas the corporate tax cut didn't do them any good so it's funny i i just think as as a matter of logic what we see with the reduction in the salt tax or the, excuse me, the, um, the limitation of the deduction for, for state and local taxes is something that we talk about all the time, which is that the tax code, when the, as the tax code was used in the post-war era to um, offer a kind of national expression for national goals, like home ownership is a good, therefore we should have a, we should have a, you know, we should have a tax deduction on the mortgage interest for homes to to stimulate home purchasing and make people owners and all of that. 
And the long-term distortive effect of that, which also led inexorably to the financial meltdown of 2008, is now inarguable. But you can't just get rid of it in the middle. I mean, that's the problem. It's like there are all these taxes that were put in place that ended up having, or tax decisions that ended up having these horrible long-term consequences. The biggest one, I think, I think everybody agrees was attaching the deduction for healthcare expenses to the company that gives you insurance, as opposed to it going to you individually as the taxpayer, being administered by a company. I don't know anybody in the world who studies healthcare who thinks this decision which happened, you know, in the post, in the immediate aftermath of World War II wasn't a disastrous mistake. But it's not, it's reversing it with a snap of your legislative fingers is all but impossible. The entire American economy has been structured around dealing with this reality and you can't just eliminate it. You have to transition, you have to have this, you have to do that, blah, 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 blah. And that was sort of the same with salt in some ways. Like, it's good that it's limited, but um, in some ways you would have to then deal with the other consequence, you know, saying, okay, you know what, now your state is going to have to lower its state and local taxes so that you don't have a big tax increase. Well, fine. It can't be done in a year. Even if they wanted to, even if you had a, a you know, a, a revolt, a taxpayer revolt that led to the kind of things that you want to happen at the state level, those changes can't happen the same way you can just airily pass a limitation in the deduction. These are complicated matters. You know, it's, it's like, um, you know, it's like doing brain surgery. Like you can't just cut, you know, like you'll cut something and then, and then you'll, some other part of the brain will be affected. Anyway, that's my. Well, one one thing I think is very interesting to point out for those who've been following their own internal debate on this SALT deduction is that the big compromise that I think would have been politically potent is if they had brought a higher level of SALT deduction back, but limited it to income levels. And they were at one point talking about 400,000, another point even going up to a million. And two things happened that are very interesting. First of all, the Democrats that are demanding the restoration of SALT deduction be in this bill weren't satisfied with it. They wanted an un, uh, a no cap on, on income level. But number two, if they had done it, it wouldn't have moved the needle. There basically was no real financial impact on loss of SALT deduction for people in between 400 and 700,000. Where it became a very big deal was exclusively in the pretty much well into the seven figure um, income levels. And so as they were scoring it, they kind of were going to have to admit that the SALT deduction loss that Trump passed was a tax increase only on rich people. And that that talking point needed to be eliminated. So they inversed it the other way. Yeah. So anyway, we're having this conversation about like the angels dancing on the head of a pin. I don't see any indication from what has happened in the last two days with SALT, with the CBO scoring or anything like that, that this bill isn't dead anyway, whatever the House does. It's dead. It's $500 billion more than Manchin wants. Cinema doesn't like it. Sanders doesn't like the SALT deduction. Uh, there's all this stuff in the House that is there to satisfy House progressives. It's not, it's, it's not going to be law. What they okay. passed today is not going to be law. 
But that means it's a messaging bill, as as Noah has been saying over and over again. And the weird thing about that is they actually think this is the right message. I mean, that's the part that's baffling to me. I mean, every every signal they've been getting from the American people is that we no, 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 stop, stop, calm down. Like, this is not what we're concerned about. And they have steamrolled along. And I think, you know, whatever happens with the midterm elections, I mean, they will have only themselves to blame if this is the message they think is going to resonate right now. But then can I ask a question if if it's if it's not going to be law and I agree it's not, what exactly was the purpose of Kevin McCarthy's marathon speech. Oh, okay. So Kevin McCarthy, if people don't know, spoke last night, uh, Thursday night into Friday morning for eight hours and 13 minutes. It had two purposes, one of which was he wanted to give a speech longer than the speech Nancy Pelosi gave on immigration in 2018, which was eight hours and two minutes. Um, If you hear Democrats yelling and screaming about how Kevin McCarthy just, you know, bloviated for eight hours, uh, he didn't, he didn't start the fire. This was a this was a long held grudge that Pelosi made them all sit there for eight hours while she spoke about immigration. So he was going to make them sit all night and listen to him talk about Build Back Better. Uh, you know that 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 was an answer. That's a weird, petty little internal house game that got played. Um, the other part is that I didn't really listen to the speech, but I gather the way to look at it is that it was uh, the way that McCarthy was laying down the markers for the Republican caucus on what they were going to say against it because he went through it systematically. Right. He said, I'm going to talk about every section of this 2000 page bill and show you why every single thing in it is bad. So uh, by doing that, and I assume, you know, uh, you know, collating all that evidence and information he created the roadmap for the attack. Um, yeah, but wouldn't a more effective, I mean, like, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, I, I, I don't necessarily see the strategy there, but wouldn't a more effective one have been to just allow them to pass this thing literally at midnight? I mean, isn't that the better talking point? Look, I, I hold no brief for Kevin McCarthy. So don't, don't make me, don't make me try to defend his actions. I think he's uh, not good at this job. And uh, and as you know, behave is also kind of a disgrace. So I'm not I'm not I'm not here to say anything nice about Kevin McCarthy. I'm just explaining what I think he thought he was he thought he was doing. Um, and uh, also sticking it to the moderates who are going to cave, as you said. I mean, we we know that there's at least one moderate. There's one House moderate Democrat, Golden of Maine, who was going to vote against it. And remember, if they can get four to vote against it then it dies, but I assume that they're not going to get those four, um, which is actually why the salt thing is there. Like, in fact, the moderate the moderate blackmail worked. I mean, you think Pelosi, I mean, if Pelosi personally wants salt, and I guess her district wouldn't mind salt, but, but um, you know, I mean, I, I don't think they would have wanted it there. I mean, th- th- that deduction is there to get Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey and, you know, uh, very, you know, seven or eight different Democrats who would otherwise have sensibly voted against the bill to vote for it because it has the goodie that they want. It's the ultimate earmark and they got it. And so they have to vote for it, even though even though they probably know it's not going to be law, but they can go back to the distance and say, I fought, I fought, I got this. I got the progressives to agree to making sure that this incredible injustice being done to you in, you know, 
Morristown, New Jersey. I, I don't even know where Gottheimer's district is specifically. He's in New but... Jersey five, which is the very upper part of the state, going all the way okay. from Bergen. So in Alpine, yeah. So in Alpine, New Jersey, where the where the you know where rappers and you know <laughs> celebrities live. Like I fought for you, you know. So but that's just don't... one part of his district. A lot of that district yeah. is by no means affluent. Right. But anyway, I'm just saying. So he got what he wanted, and and they therefore are getting the moderates to 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 vote for it. I guess. Uh, am I crazy though? Do you see, David? I mean, you're not a you're not a political prognosticator, but you follow this as closely as anybody. I mean, do you see any way, shape, or form that what's passing the House here is something that Manchin is gonna is gonna uh, say? All right, I'm you know. They trimmed it, and they. Uh, I mean, I just don't don't see how you know it's only one vote kills the bill. No, I, I don't see how Manchin's going to vote for it, and I don't see how Bernie Sanders is going to vote for it. The, in a lot of ways, the House has done something fascinating because they've given a bill back to the Senate that both the moderates and the progressives are going to have to to chew up a little bit. Um, the bigger, I I suspect that then what happens is uh, the Senate does end up passing a bill. And that where the rubber meets the road is what the House will do with the Senate's restruck bill, because I think that's effectively going to be an entirely different bill. And and I don't know how they get it done uh, by the end of the year. And again, apart from a really monumental cave, which is entirely possible, I, I wouldn't predict who will cave. But apart from a cave, it just simply can't get done. So I'm I'm still in that kind of 50-50 camp where I think a lot of you have been that I'm very open to the idea they do not get uh, a better bill back, better bill, blah, 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 done at, at all. I think that's entirely possible. I mean, we should describe the process here for people who are not, you know, up on that. So the Senate is not obliged to pass the House bill. In fact, it's very rare that what happens is there's a House bill that passes the House. The Senate passes its own version of the same bill, but it is not it is not the same i mean in large measure it does a lot of the same stuff but it is a slightly different bill and then there is a process called reconciliation not budget reconciliation but where the bills where people from the house and people from the senate negotiate over the final language that attempts to harmonize the two bills and involves things being amended things being cut out lengthening the times of certain types of spending all of that stuff at which point the bill then has to be voted on again by the house and by the senate and at that point they the vote is on the same bill it presumably if it passes the house and senate it then goes to the president for signature so this is step one of a five-step process the house votes the senate votes there is a reconciliation process that produces a harmonized bill, and then the House votes, and then the Senate votes again, and then the president signs. It's actually six steps. So this is actually step one on a six-step road that will be could be interfered with at step two, where there is no Senate bill, because Manchin and Sanders cannot agree on the bill. <clears throat> Like Manchin and Sanders can agree that maybe salt should be removed from it, which will then eliminate the salt expense. But Sanders will want X, Y, and Z, and Manchin won't. And in any case, 
if you eliminate the salt expense, the bill goes back to the House and no longer has the salt expense in it, then the moderates vote against the moderates in the House vote against the bill. Why would they vote for it? Uh, so anyway, you slice it. We're going into this bizarre moment where uh, the House will celebrate its passage of this bill that is that is dead on arrival in the Senate, except if it's in a completely different version that will then not be acceptable to the House anyway and may not be acceptable to the Senate. Like, I don't know how you write the bill that the Senate's going to pass. So this goes votes. into 2022. At which point we're deep into the midterm cycle and all the psychological pressures that are going to be on Democrats if the generic ballot question continues to produce near double digit Republican uh, advantages. And then, you know, you have abject panic overtaking the, the progressive commentariat, which dominates center left media. All of them are going to be saying that we're going to lose horribly if you don't pass this. It's not going to pass. And then we get something akin to bloody fratricidal conflict within the democratic party rather than actually positioning the party as a palatable alternative to republican obstructionism but but i have a question about that noah do you i think you're right that the media will be saying and there may be some true believers in the far left in the congress who believe if we don't pass something we face this uh, electoral disaster but don't you think that there are also some who know the opposite to be true that if they do pass it, they face electoral disaster. Oh, sure, yeah. But how many divisions do they have? I mean, they are uh, they are but, but without any the- levers of power to command within within the press, within center left media. But I'm talking about the votes. Yeah, what do they matter? <laughs> well, they- <laughs> Genu- gen- genuinely, look at the 2021 outcomes. That the 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 sort of existential crisis that was imposed on Democrats lasted all of what 48 hours before they convince themselves that all they have to do to avoid a nightmare is to do the exact same thing they've been doing for the last year? So I think you're talking high level until they convince themselves. I'm only referring to three or four or eight honest and, and, and astute House Democrats who know the opposite to be the case, or, or even one senator who knows the opposite to be the case. I, I don't think that – I think you're 100% right on what the media narrative will be but I'm saying factually, I think there are some who know that they are worse off electorally passing this than if they don't. I mean, look, the the situation is that uh, you have an interesting Marjorie Margolis Mezvinsky problem next year. And the, the problem is this, which is that we go into 2022. The bill can't be can't be finished until 2022. And at that point, it looks like. It's Armageddon, no matter what. Right now, we have 15 Democratic retirements from the House. That's going to accelerate after Thanksgiving, is my guess, particularly if one or two more generic polls that show Democrats being slaughtered. Um, so they're going to lose. Like, there are all these moderates who are going to lose. They're not even, they may not run, or they, they, they're already, like, reconciling themselves to incredibly tough. Either way, if they vote for it, they're nailed. If they don't vote for it, they're blamed for it anyway, even if it doesn't pass, whatever it is. And therefore, they might have a weird incentive to pass it on the grounds that they will at least pass it because they're trying to be part of a historic 
democratic effort to make the country better and to save the Biden presidency. That was the story with Obamacare. It was also the story with Obamacare that Democrats had 258 members in the House and a near, you know, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Right. But what my point, the point that I'm trying to make here is that you could have these nine or 10 moderates who are like, well, we're fried either way. So do we vote against it because we really don't, we ideologically, we genuinely don't like it. And we think that it's a disaster for the party and for the country. And we are going to stand athwart it, which is not really something that liberals do stand athwart things yelling stop, right? That's what we do, not them. Um, uh, or do they, or do they vote for it? Because it's like, well, we're Democrats and, you know, all things being equal, sure, we'd want as much spending as possible. We were just in these districts that made it impossible for us to really advocate for it. But we're, we're toast anyway. And if we vote for it, maybe we'll get an ambassadorship to Liechtenstein. You know, I mean, you know, Biden will take care of us. We'll give him what he wants. So we don't really know about that. We don't know what happens in the House. We, it still comes down yet again to mansion and cinema. I mean, it just that that's where we are. Uh, the House is not going to save America from the Build Back Better bill. House moderates are not going to save America from the Build Back Better bill. Only Mansion and Cinema are going to save America from the Build Back Better bill, one way or the other, is my view. It doesn't even matter. So what happens today doesn't matter. Uh, why they would shift gears, that's the question. All the data would tell you that they will say no. And that they will go I, with it. A lot of people are predicting this mansion and cinema cave. And I think that's what a few of my, my friends in National Review think is going to happen. And, and I was thinking about that. How could you have a worse political outcome for yourself than to cave at this point? Like if Manchin caved and everyone who likes that he's holding the ground, moderates, blue dog, obviously, you know, folks on, on the right, they, they're going to hate him. But then is he really going to endear himself to the left again? Like, are they all of a sudden going to say, well, um, yeah, you put us through hell for eight months, but you came around, so we like you? I mean, I think Mansion Cinema have politically absolutely no benefit with the left by caving at this point. They are persona non grata forever in that party. And at this point, their best political fortunes are aligned with what you're forecasting. They, they are best to hold the line and help kill this bill. Well, it's uh, it was interesting because Cinema just gave a big uh, sit down interview with the Washington Post, and she says, I mean, everything she says in that interview reinforces her point, David. I mean, she's like, no one's going to tell me what to do. Her independence is her brand. People in Arizona clearly like it. What there's nothing in it for her, especially as a senator. I mean, there's what she doesn't need that. She's already got, you know, politically, she's got backup at home, and she won't be targeted by Republicans. I forget where I saw it, but it was something along the lines of. <laughs> members of the uh, Senate Republican conference saying that they didn't expect the party to, to really vigorously challenge her for her reelect. By the way, she's not up for reelection till right. 2024 anyway. So the whole, the whole situation is preposterous. She is not at risk in, but, yeah. in the next but, election cycle. And it, this bill will pass the idea that she will be held accountable for her vote three years before you know her election in 2024 particularly if those very suburban people like arizona is a weird arizona is a state that is 70 percent suburb i mean it's not even urban 
It's like 70%. Maricopa County is mostly a suburb. It's like 70% of the votes. Like, that is the vote that will look at, at, at cinema and say, you know, she, she, she's independent doing what we think is necessary. She's a Democrat. She's not too much of a Democrat. She'll do things that Republicans like if she thinks they're best for the state. Like, that is a fantastic brand. She's also, by the way, redeeming Gen X politicians because she's not unlike Pete Buttigieg and the horrible Beto. Like she's actually a real Gen X personality, like everything about mm-hmm. how she postures politically, which as a Gen Xer, I just appreciate at a personal level. So that's <laughs> that quirkiness. I love it. <laughs> well, there we go. We should we should we should we should go into that more at another time. But before we do that, let me talk to you about Bowling Branch Sheets. We spend one third of our lives in bed. Pure organic sheets from Bowling Branch make a truly special gift. Because Bowling Branch makes the highest quality sheets by doing things the right way, not the easy way. Uh, husband and wife team Scott and Missy Tannen founded Bowling Branch to create a new standard in bedding by doing things that way. And their signature hem sheets are their all-time bestseller. They're beloved for so many reasons, like how they get softer with every single wash. Are you finding that, Noah, now that you've had them? They're getting softer? Well, we haven't had the opportunity to wash them yet. They've been replaced briefly but once they are washed, I will report back on the level of butteriness that we tend to experience with Bowling Branch sheets. I expect nothing less than clarified butteriness. Okay, they come in a wide range of colors and all sizes from Twin Up to California King, completely toxin-free, fair trade certified. Treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bowling Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready in their special holiday packaging. Order. By December 19th for guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Get 20% off your order with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and the branch.com promo code commentary. See site for details. Exclusions may apply. David, your book just out. There's no free lunch. 250 economic truths. Tell us about it. Well, the idea was... um that I think an economic uh, education is necessary for many people who already instinctively believe a lot of the right things about economic conclusions. In other words, I'm finding more and more people uh, who have an impulse towards uh, free market orientation. There's something intuitive about the risk reward basis of uh, free enterprise, the allocation of resources they find to be more efficient in the system there's just sort of a political alignment that, that makes sense for a lot of people, but I don't think it's ever been particularly intellectualized. I don't think it's ever been necessarily foundationalized. And this book is intending to highlight the first principles that I think caused me to become a relentless advocate of uh, a free society. And of course, as a uh, person of faith, it was incredibly important to me that the Judeo-Christian ethic uh, sit at the foundation of free enterprise in contrary uh, declaration of the biggest uh, defense of free enterprise we see today, which is mostly from secular rationalists. And I think that's creating a big part of the problem that young people, if they are at any point defenders of free enterprise are almost always Randian. And I do not think that is a sustainable multi-generational platform for free enterprise to last. It's why I think lately the progressives have been winning the argument with younger people. So I wanted to do a few different things and yet so much of what needed to be said has already been said. 
So I extracted from the masters of old, uh, various economists that have written things that I think need to be reaffirmed and then added my own pithy commentary to 250 such declarations. So can you give us an example um, of, you know, a page from your devotional? Like what, 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 like what, what are some of your favorite truths here? Not that you don't like every one of them as their truths. We should like them whether they're inconvenient or unpleasant or not, but. Um, it is hard because I'm getting asked that question in a lot of interviews and I'm changing my answer at each Good, change it because you have 250 answers. That's true. But I think the people then that go to the book's website and, and look at more than one interview are going to find me contradicting myself on my favorite. But of course, it's possible my favorite just changes day by day. And what I would say is thematically, my favorites are definitely those that reinforce free enterprise and any, and any view of economics as something that ought to be towards the aim of human flourishing. Um, the notion that economics is supposed to be a mathematical or scientific exercise um, is, a, is effectively why people have turned it into such a technocratic discipline. Um, I do see it as the ultimate social science in the sense of it being the study of human action that praxeology of economics has largely been lost, even by many on the right. And so there's a whole lot of quotes from people like Deirdre McCoskey. Uh, obviously, Ludwig von Mies famously coined the phrase human action. But, but I think even uh, people like my dear friend, Father Robert Sirica, who I was just with at the Acton Institute the other night celebrating his retirement, um, there are groups now that are really focused on this anthropology of free enterprise, uh, rooting it as effectively a study of man. And, and for me, that being the study of man in the garden, him being created by God as a, a creature of great, innovative, productive, and creative capacity. So there's a number of truisms highlighted in the book on that theme. Those probably animate me more than anything else. But then by the time I get to Hayek on the knowledge problem, I'm totally sidetracked again. So <laughs> there's a lot of nuggets there. Uh, human flourishing is a, is a, is a, is a, is a term um, that um, I think is increasingly important uh, because I, I, I do, I do feel like we are now finding um, an, uh, a, a our politics or our moral politics um, in a kind of contest over this very idea that if the purpose of society, politics, our, our system is to allow people, is to remove barriers to human flourishing so that individuals are find themselves in a position to make the most of what God gave them, whatever that might be. Uh, that is one that is one view of what the purpose of our politics should be. And the other view of the purpose of our politics is that it is there to relieve suffering and to provide a basic life for everyone and to um, uh, equalize outcomes to the extent possible so that rather than individuals flourishing, which obviously can happen at different rates, at different levels and in different ways, uh, people end up at the same place. 
human flourishing itself. Argue, oh, yeah, go ahead. I would just argue that they don't end up at the same place, that if the alleviation of suffering um, is equated with human flourishing and suffering is defined as merely the delivery of a material need, which is not my definition of human flourishing, then that can be used as a slippery slope towards all types of central planning. No, I agree. I, I was actually saying my view is that 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 the left side of the political ledger is now increasingly, rather than trying to create the conditions under which individuals are free to flourish, that they want to create a mass right to living at a certain basic level that everybody should be at. And that yes. if you are too high of, above that level, you are uh, you are gaining unequally. And if you are too if you are below that level, you need to be lifted up through exogenous means to maintain you at that level. In part by pushing down the people <laughs> using the means from the people who find themselves far above it. And that as opposed to the question that, of whether we're organized around saying our purpose as creatures in God's image is to, is to take the benefit of what God has given us all individually and maximize that as part of a tribute to God's creation, let's say. And, um, that view is not that view is deemed by many people the one that I just described as 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 a as evil because it creates inequalities of outcome. Well, and I think that their their view is more consistent with um, Marx's materialism. That at the end of the day, um, the their historical materialism requires them to believe that the human need being met at that basic level is sufficient, is adequate, is the policy aim. Um, I think it requires an anthropology, like the one I write about in the book, to uh, define flourishing with a spiritual dimension, an existential dimension, and to view economic life as merely one part of the whole orbit of flourishing. I define it for the high school students that I'm teaching economics to this semester as the spiritual and material peace, abundance, harmony, and joy that is the goal of human activity. Um, that would be a dangerous definition for, I think, many modern adherents to leftism to hold to because it would require them to have a very diminished role of the state in public life. And so the free society, the free and virtuous society that I envision in the Burkean tradition, I believe, requires us to have our definitions right and the definitions of economics, of an economy, and of human flourishing um, are all wrongly defined by progressives and unfortunately are becoming oftentimes defined wrongly by some on the right. And so the book does have various subtle corrections to some of these movements taking place you know, with integralism, with populism and so forth. Can Can I ask, because I think um, I, I agree with your perspective and particularly the point about it, that we can't just offer econ economic based answers to what are in fact kind of questions of meaning and purpose. Um, and the right has tended to try to do that. But what do you, how would you respond? What is the sort of free enterprise and more um, uh, 
ecumenical uh, answer to people who say, look, human nature shows that people will give up freedom for comfort and convenience. We know this. We watch us do it all the time. Lately, they've also given up um, freedom for safety or a sense of safety. Uh, the pandemic being an, being an example of that. So my question is, what is your sort of free enterprise response to that deeply embedded part of human nature when the state itself is also encouraging a certain approach to safety and comfort and actively, in some cases, trying to limit freedom? Well, I don't think that there is an answer apart from the Yuval um, Levin is probably the contemporary who's written most eloquently about this. Um, and again, I think this is very much in the Burkean tradition, we have to inform the moral sensibilities. There has to be a moral education, a restoration of mediating institutions, because fundamentally, this to me is the story going all the way back to the people wanting a king in First Samuel. The um, temptation to statism is always messianic. It has always been a desire to replace self-government with, um, with statism. Uh, I don't think that that is just an economic challenge. It is a, a political one, um, but and, and of course, it's one that is rooted in these other cultural and even spiritual maladies. But I, I think that the incentive structure of economics that free enterprise represents is not merely one that we can tempt people with. You'll get a better quality of life if you give up a little safety for the kind of more opportunistic risk-reward structure we're offering. I think it fundamentally has to be rooted in the argument for dignity and the argument for that sort of earned success that Arthur Brooks used to talk about a lot. And, and I think you're exactly right that there are plenty of people who just aren't tempted by it. And we see this right now post-COVID. Like, uh, I think that a lot of people can make more than X by going back to work, but they're satisfied to make X not working and there is this um, uh, uh, challenge that comes out of that because it does end up leading to macroeconomic problems as well. And so the book, taken holistically, writes about the virtue and discipline and character that is necessary for uh, uh, enlightened free enterprise worldview to take hold in the society. Well, you know, uh, dignity is an important word and you use the word dignity and it's very much, again, a kind of interesting challenge to the, to, to the left because um, it is missing from their diagnosis of what needs to happen for people, which is that uh, it, it is not just a fantasy to say that providing people with money uh, that they do not earn um, makes the money cheaper and less meaningful to them. Providing for the people you love gives meaning to the act of earning the money that you then use to the support your family, your children, your loved ones, your relatives, your community in the form of charitable contributions and your own labor and all of that. And that, and that we all understand that this is a, this is something that affords you a kind of self-worth because of the dignity of work that 
you know, if you read uh, Thomas Piketty or what, you know, it, it, it is the quality that is entirely absent from contemporary left liberal economics is this notion that these are people and that all of this is about making sure that people are in a position to lead meaningful and decent lives. Uh, because now that we no longer really have to worry in the United States, for example, about actual starvation, you know, um, how do people lead meaningful lives? And a lot of the solutions that are proffered are completely silent to that. And we've now spent 20 years with this horrible, you know, story about the increase in suicides, the massive increase in depression, the massive increase in the use of you know, anti-depressant, this, this, this world in which people are saying that they're soul sick, they are, they are, they are making it very clear millions upon millions upon millions of people that they are experiencing sicknesses of the soul because no care is being taken to, to teach them or provide them with the means by which they can live, lead the kind of dignified life that is the answer to that kind of soul sickness. And, and I think uh, to David's point, it has nothing to do with their material welfare. These are people who can get more than sufficient calories uh, into their bodies, uh, let alone have, have TVs and, in some cases, cars and, and you know, uh, ample clothing and all the rest of what, what, what it used to mean to be, uh, to, make, to be below the poverty level had so much to do with material deprivation. And that's not even... What is the what is what we're talking about when we talk about the horror of being poor in America now? I think that the um, idea of of being a supply side economist has to transcend the idea of lower marginal tax rates. That for me, um, I believe the production side of the economy is not only the healthiest and the sort of sine qua non of all economic a- activity but it is the um, vehicle for this existential soul-feeding need in society for people to be able to be more productive. I can make the argument better when I root it in the fact that they were in fact created to be productive by an incredibly productive God and that when we form a social organization for society around there being two castes of people, not rich and poor, but productive and consumptive, that there are some people who are just really not that good, not that productive, not that smart, not that industrious, not risk takers. They need to be taken care of by those who did get the productive gene. That is the implicit philosophy of all leftist economics, that some people are just simply made with less dignity than others, apparently. And my belief recognizing disparities that exist in education, in economic um, uh, well-being out of the womb, so to speak, that fundamentally out of creation, God's view and the view that we ought to have in the way we think about economic societal formation is that all people are capable of being productive. And, And I don't think that the right has formulated its economic messaging around that existential message for quite some time right uh give me a second to just talk to you guys about moink box because the best bacon the best steak the best chicken and the best salmon you'll ever eat won't come from the grocery store you only find it on the family farm 
and caught by independent Alaskan fishermen. That's why you need moinkbox.com. It delivers grass-fed, grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door. Their animals are raised outdoors. Their fish swim wild in the ocean, and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormone sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisles. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of ground beef for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month. Cancel any time. Um, y- you will uh, get free ground beef for a year if you go and join the Moink movement today at moinkbox.com slash commentary right now. Listeners to the show get free ground beef for a year, Moink was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted. Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. So join the movement. One year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K box dot com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. So David... Couldn't let you go, even though we are approaching the hour mark here, but we couldn't let you go without some in- inflation talk. So uh, um, uh, you do not deny, as an economic realist, that the statistics show that at this present moment, inflation is up, right? And that inflation is, according to the stats, inflation's up 6% year to year, Um what you believe is that the is that a lot of people misunderstand what is going on here and think that there is something going on uh in 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 policy terms both in the passage of legislation and the behavior of the fed uh that that people are attributing to democratic legislation which you oppose and fed behavior which you also i think oppose um that is not actually the caught that is not actually if you were going to bet on the long term circumstances of the American economy, betting on us moving into an inflationary period is exactly the wrong bet and is a misunderstanding of what's actually going to go on over the next decade and maybe the next generation. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair summary. I would argue that my opposition to the government spending bills is more fervent than those who are arguing it's inflationary. Because the argument, don't pass this bill, it's going to make the economy too hot, is a very bizarre argument. What it's going to do is suck growth out of the future. That's what excessive government indebtedness does. And this is not a controversial opinion, and I don't think it's very disputable. Excessive government indebtedness sucks growth out of the future. That is a disinflationary reality over time. If we define inflation as price escalations, we are suffering. The 6.2 is very disingenuous because that would require people to have said we had deflation a year ago, and I didn't hear anybody saying it. It's 3.7% annualized for two years, and without food and energy, it's 2.6%. But food and energy matter, so that data to me is kind of odd. 3.7% for two years is... Uh, going back to pre-COVID levels. This is a byproduct right now of um, the money supply is higher times a lower velocity. So you're getting less inflationary impact from the monetary side, but then you have prices going higher with a um, 
really dramatic collapse in the delta between demand and supply. Uh, there are some factors to this that are temporary and some factors that are going to be longer lived. I'm more um, convinced that uh, in the temporary nature of the supply chain issues, X semiconductor, and more convinced of a longer term problem on the labor shortages. If the Fed got rid of all quantitative easing tomorrow, no tapering, just immediately stopped all bond buying. And Joe Biden called a press conference to say there will be no additional government spending. It would not do one bit to hire 80,000 truck drivers that are needed immediately to get the country reopened, for, to get the supply activity uh, that is necessary to meet the delta in demand. It is a chain of circumstances that does not make for a very good conversation on Fox News. It does not make for a good tweet from a Republican senator. And I'm fully supportive, and you and I have emailed about this privately, fully supportive of Republicans making all the political hay out of this they want, because it's going to help them. It's going to be effective. Noah brought it up last time I was on the podcast. People don't care why prices are higher. So I'm fully cognizant of the pragmatic nature of where we are in this conversation. But I am an economist, not a politician. And I cannot let the record state something that the entire multi, multi, multi trillion dollar bond market is screaming as economically absurd, which is that we have this huge fear of long-term inflation because of present policy. We have a massive fear of Japanification. People are saving less, and that means you get less investment, which means you get less productivity. Someone can break apart my algebraic expression anytime they want and tell me what part is wrong. Do you get more productivity from less investment? That would be a peculiar argument, but I'll listen to it. Do you get, less do you get more investment from less savings? Now, that one I think would be kind of hard just an identity equation. There is no investment that doesn't start with savings. That's a tautology. So fundamentally, I'm saying something non-controversial, that we have a one and a half percent yield on 10-year government debt and a basically 2% yield on 30-year government debt. And all these yields have done nothing but go down as debt to GDP has gone higher because government spending is a bad thing in excess of a capacity to serve it. We don't have the economic capacity to deal with this excessive indebtedness, just like Europe doesn't and just like Japan doesn't. So that is the more nuanced argument. It just took me five minutes to say it on your podcast. So I can't say it in 30 seconds right. on Fox News, but I am thoroughly convinced that economically for investors, which is my priority, and for those that are trying to avoid the mistake the right made in um, post-World War II, this came out of Cato. It came, Coke was a huge funder of a guy named Murray Rothbard. There was a big group out of otherwise interesting, sensible, right-wing economic thought that every single thing was inflationary. And it was aided by the circumstances of the 1970s that you've talked about somewhat biographically quite a bit around the oil embargo, the uh, Nixon pulling us off gold standard in 71, and all of these factors that created genuine inflationary realities. We say this line all the time, Volcker broke the back of inflation by raising interest rates. They raise interest rates to 5% tomorrow. It doesn't do a single thing to get truck drivers back to work. 
it okay, would let put, me yeah. let me just propose to you a, a quick scenario because you could see a nightmare scenario in every direction for the right based on what you said, which is to say the things that you say are most injurious at present, meaning the 80,000 truck driver problem. That can be cured over time. I mean, it could be cured in six months. We don't know how. I'm not sure I understand how. But let's just say COVID and blah, da, 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 and then It can be cured and it will be cured. Right. Okay, so that like in the middle of 2022, when things start to har- all sorts of things start to harmonize, the kind of explosive growth that everybody thought was going to happen in 2021, but was inter but was interfered with because COVID ha- had a more lingering effect than we expected. Actually, things explode in 2022, massive economic growth in 2022, and. It may be inflationary, but nonetheless, wages may outstrip what inflationary results there are. Goods are being delivered. Everything's being offloaded. Trucks are driving. Things are, you know, things are just humming all along. And the here's the nightmare for the right. The results in the November 2022 election may be bad just because of cyclical effects and the fact that people are going to blame Biden for the pain that they suffered this year. But you could look at 2024, let's say, or going into 2024, we could have a very healthy economic circumstance in America that propels and transports the Democrats forward, kind of like 84, a little bit, maybe like 96, a little bit for Clinton, 84 for, for, for uh, Reagan. And then comes the deflation. That's your big you're looking at that borrowing against the American future, and I think you think it's it's close, right? It's not it's not far off. Well, well you let me ask you this: you said yeah. mentioned a six point two percent increase in CPI. I think it's a somewhat disingenuous number, right. but as a headline, it's true. Do you think inflation, meaning the movement higher of prices from here to where they are a year from now, is going to be higher or lower than six point two percent? I mean, let's put it this way. If it's higher than 6.2%, then, I mean, you know, then we all might all like look for, you know, to move to New Zealand or something. This is what disinflation is, is the, is positive inflation at a decelerating rate of growth. That headline of 3% inflation off of what was 6% is going to be politically advantageous to Biden in my opinion. Right. And, and so what you have is, um, I don't know if I would agree about 2024, because I think at that point, uh, there is going to be such a diminished return from the monetary stimulus in the economy that it, it, it's just enti- impossible to predict that far out. But no, I think right. it's a very real risk for next year that Democrats by summertime want to run off of a totally different economic narrative. Um, the, the price increases that we face now uh, are not all going to be cured by summer, but the rate of growth will very likely be going down. It's not necessarily going to make people feel entirely better, but I do think that betting all of our horses on this notion that we're getting 1970s inflation, 1970s inflation was not six months it was basically the entire second half of the decade 
combined with very underwhelming nominal GDP growth. That's where this term stagflation came from. There is very high nominal GDP growth right now. And, and so I, I, my own political feelings about how they ought to message this are somewhat immaterial. I'm more just saying that economically, long-term, we have a real thing to talk about, which is the economic stagnation and lost opportunity and lost growth that comes from excessive government indebtedness. Joe Biden might've got the biggest favor of his presidency from Kristen Cinema, because if I'm right, which I am, that the uh, price pressures we face right now, upward price pressures are supply side driven. There is nothing they could have done worse than increase marginal tax rates on corporate income, personal income and investment income. Kristen Cinema took those things off. Now, do I think that they're about to go pass an art laugh or tax cut on marginal rates? Of course not. That would soak up a lot of these inflationary pressures real quick though, but they're not gonna do that. But they at least avoided exacerbating that inflationary problem in a pretty profound way. Well, you know, you can't count one thing you can count on Biden to do when faced with certain types of choices that will that that will either help him or harm him is that he will probably make the wrong choice based on the last 11 months. He has not chosen to do things that are helpful to him and you know, obviously he would if he knew better. And so, you know, some of this does depend on him not stepping on his own recovery. And I suspect that he 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 will do that. And that's part of what's missing from this, you know, rank punditry analysis of what the political consequences of our economic situation will be 11 months from now is that they don't take into account the fact that Biden is sitting there and will be doing things and they will have an effect, you know, like, he did Afghanistan and it's had this effect on him. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it and he'll choose to do other things. And right now you got to figure that whatever he chooses to do is going to be the wrong choice for him and for the country. And therefore, God knows what the effects of that will be 11 months from now or 11 and a half months from now. Anyway, David, everybody should go download or buy. There's no free lunch. 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson. It's been great to have you. And uh, for everybody, have a great weekend. For Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.